When many Christians think about the end of things, I think the word or the picture that comes to mind is toast. In part because of what Peter writes in verse number 10, what we looked at last week. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. While there is some disagreement as to what Peter means or intends, the picture that comes to mind is that everything will be destroyed. By the way, this is not scripture, but I find Robert Frost's poem, uh, Fire and Ice, to be interesting in this regard. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. What we will see today, I hope, is that everything will be destroyed, but this is not, nor should it be seen as the final word. As one commentator put it, the end that is the beginning. In verses 12 through 14, we read, look forward or looking forward three times. This should tell us something that we are to look forward. As we saw last Sunday, the coming judgment is the second promise that Peter writes of. In verses 8 to 10, he writes of two promises in answer to the question of the false teachers, where is this coming that he promised? The first is the Lord's promised patience, as demonstrated from the Old Testament, from Psalm 90. And then the Lord's promised return, as demonstrated from the New Testament, the New Covenant. The promised patience, as I said, is from Psalm 90, verse 4. This, by the way, we are told is written by Moses. <coughs> Not someone we normally associate with the book of Psalms. The verse reads, Psalm 90, verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or a watch, or like a watch in the night. As we saw, God sees time with a perspective that we lack and with an intensity that we lack. He can see the broad sweep of history in a moment, yet he can stretch out a day with patient care. But I think there is much more than that. If you look at verse 3, for example, in Psalm 90, you turn men back to dust, which refers back to Genesis 3:19, for dust you are and to dust you will return. But if you will think a moment, God told Adam, and here I'm reading from the King James, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Yet we know that they did eat, and while they did experience death on various fronts, socially, psychologically, spiritually, ecologically, the reality is they did not experience physical death on that day. We might ask why. And it is because God mercifully extended the possibility of salvation. Indeed, in our lives, instead of us dying on the day that we sin, we would all then be dead, we find God's patience. We talked about this at the Bible study uh, Wednesday night. How long did Adam live? 930 years. So the day on that day you will surely die, that day became 930 years, almost a thousand years. God in his grace and patience extended Adam's life. Simply put, God is patient. This is the lesson which the false teachers have deliberately forgotten. But we must not forget as well. It is for our benefit that God measures time on his time scale and not our own. 
On the other hand, the second promise is that God will judge. This is the Lord's promised return, as seen in the New Testament. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is not simply a quote from the apostles, but takes into account the teachings of Jesus himself. This promise is a counterbalance to the first one, the promise of patience. Yes, God is patient. God is merciful. He will be patient, but he will come in judgment. Both have been promised, the patience and the return. There will come a day when God will say, no more, no more delay. This will certainly come as a shock to the false teachers, those who do not expect him. We, on the other hand, are to be those who look forward. Just a side note, um, I'm sure you all have heard about Carmageddon too. It seems apparently there's nothing else going on in the world right now except the closure of a freeway. And Gia was saying that when the real Armageddon comes, that people will complain that we were not given sufficient notice, we were not given alternative routes, we were not given... Yes, we have been told that the Lord will return, but it will come as a shock to those who are not prepared. We are to look forward. That is our perspective, and we saw this last week. Reality and time is to be shaped by the coming of Christ, the incarnation, and the return of Christ, the ending. Since Jesus has come into the world, as we spoke in the Creed today, he was born, he lived, he died, was buried and resurrected and ascended into heaven. That aspect is behind us. Thus, we are to look ahead, we are to look forward to his return. If you'll allow me to digress a bit right here. The more I study scripture, the more I see how tightly it is organized, how well organized it is. Here in Second Peter 3, Peter is writing at the beginning, he says, to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past. He does this in order to refute the false teachers. He points to God's word in creation, in the flood, a partial judgment, and then in the final judgment. And then the promises that are made in scripture. What I find striking is that we might think, well, Peter just sort of threw that in, but his reference to scripture The scripture with regard to creation, I think, is incredibly important. The reason I say this is I am convinced that how we view creation will affect how we write or how we view what he writes in the rest of this chapter. Our knowledge of God as creator and as God incarnate, physically entering his creation in order to save it and restore it, will influence how we will regard the material world around us. Martin Luther wrote centuries ago, Now if I believe in God's Son and bear in mind that he became man, all creatures will appear a hundred times more beautiful to me than before. Then I will properly appreciate the sun, the moon, the stars, trees, apples, and pears as I reflect that he is Lord over all and the center of all things. You may remember that at the end of the sermon last week, I spoke of God's calendar, that God His calendar is not the same as ours. It is a heavenly calendar that is in terms of his existence, not ours. That is, God exists apart from creation. It is a moral calendar because we might wonder why God doesn't bring justice right here and now. We should understand that he is not indifferent. His justice is perfect, precise, but he is also merciful and he will bring judgment at the right time when it is morally right to do so. 
And then we saw that it is an evangelistic calendar. God guides all human history as salvation history. It is about redemption, which was purchased and made possible by Jesus. And then lastly, we saw that it is a creation calendar. I think in our passage, what we looked at last week, even what we look at today, we will tend to focus on the fearful words of disappear and destroyed and laid bare. But we will forget that, as Peter wrote earlier, long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Again, I think this greatly influences how we will look at our text today. Look, if you would, at verses 11, 12, and 13, as I read. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. As I said a moment ago, the promised judgment is coming. This is what we find in verses 5 through 10. But what we find in our text here today is the moral dimension to his return. Without question, if you look at verse number 7, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then in verse number 10, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And then what we just read in verse number 12, that the day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. What we find is a thorough change, a qualitative change in creation. But this is not the end, this is not the limit of the changes. So we need to look at the end that is, in fact, the beginning. Peter now begins to draw out practical conclusions about what his reader should do on the basis of the proposition he has proven. So first of all, in verses 11 and 12, the first part of verse 12, we should prepare for the ending. Using a rhetorical question, Peter challenges his readers to consider the coming, of the, the coming certain destruction of everything. This means that everything that is transitory and is transient and that our allegiance, our energy should go to that which cannot be taken away. Just a side note, the transitory nature of things is seen in the grammar. In English, we read it as a future tense, will be destroyed. But in Greek, it is, in fact, a present participle. That is to say that the process of destruction and judgment has already begun. We are already in the midst of that. We are, as we have seen, living in the last days. That is the time between the coming of Jesus in the incarnation and his return at the end of time. Again, just to remind you of what we saw, what Peter or what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. This fits with what Peter is talking about, the destruction. It's ongoing right now. It will culminate at the end, but it is happening now. As I've said, Paul's approach is not detachment as a form of escape, but that we are to be free of the control of this world, 
The things that Paul mentions are not wrong. They are not sinful. To be married, to mourn, to be happy, to buy things, to use the things of the world. These are not wrong. Paul expects the Corinthians to continue to do this. And by the way, some of the people to whom he's writing, they think these things are wrong. They think that marriage, in fact, is sinful. And he's saying, no, it isn't. But these things are not to determine our lives. They are not to define who we are. Because these things are passing away. A Christian is to be marked by eternity. Peter tells us that everything that is transient, that is transitory, will be destroyed in this way. I think this is important for us to understand. It will be destroyed in a personal way. You see, we live you know, in a scientific age. And so when we think of the end of things, we think scientifically, we think of entropy, the sun is dying, all these different things. Our view of the end, I think, tends to be very impersonal. I think Peter would say to us today that the end is not going to be some impersonal cosmic explosion or implosion, but an encounter with the personal and living God. It is the day of judgment. If you look at the end of verse number 10, at least in the, in the NIV, it says that uh, the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And here we find the personal judgment, not some impersonal destruction. By the way, if the creation was personal, God spoke a word, let there be, why would we expect that the end of things would be some impersonal uh, reaction, uh, something that will implode or explode, we should in fact take to heart that it is by his word that he created and it will be by his word that these things will be destroyed. Because the ending is personal, there are ethical implications. There are ethical demands on us. I mean, if everything is just going to sort of wind down in entropy and that's it, then it really shouldn't matter how we live. But if, in fact, the end comes because God speaks the word and it is the end of time and there is judgment, then there are ethical considerations. Our lives as God's people, our attitudes, our choices, our behavior, our desires, our words, our thoughts. Well, Peter tells us that they are to be holy and godly. By the way, he uses the plural, which I guess would not work in English. This is how we are supposed to live. He doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts. Instead, he uses the plural forms in holy forms of behavior in godly deeds. These plurals imply, I think, rather strongly that there are many ways in which they can be practiced. We all live in different places. We have different responsibilities. And in a sense, we have different ways in which we are to be holy and godly. He wants us to bring every aspect of our life under these two headings so that we will be ready to meet a holy God. I don't know if you remember from chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort 
to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. In a real sense here at the end of his letter Peter has come full circle but now we have an orientation. We are to be looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus. If you look at verse number 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How can we speed the coming of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, isn't this something that is set down by God the Father? Can we, in fact, affect when the Lord Jesus will return? I would suggest that there are several ways in which we may change how we perceive that coming. That is, its timing. First of all, we will not speed its coming by moaning and groaning and complaining about its apparent slowness. As we saw last week, this is a common complaint among God's people. How long, O Lord? Well, I don't think it's wrong for us to say that, but please understand that in that mode, the time of the return will seem even, even farther away than it actually is. Secondly, I think we can speed its coming, at least in our perception, that in our prayers and our daily prayers, we pray your kingdom come. In a real sense, the kingdom is here. It's spreading. But the question is, do we live as citizens of the kingdom or are we just moaning and groaning because we imagine that it is something so far away from us and so distant that we can't even imagine it being? We hear this prayer in the early church at the end of 1 Corinthians Come, O Lord, Paul prays. And then at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 22, he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And then John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The third way in which we can speed the coming is by testifying to the truth of the gospel. And we hear Peter doing this in Acts chapter 3, after the day of Pentecost. He had healed the man there at the temple, And he says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has appointed, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his prophets. We find Peter and the apostles looking forward to the return of Jesus. And this in part motivated them to spread the gospel, to share the gospel. That in doing so, we speed the return, or the perception at least, of the return of the Lord Jesus. As God's people, we are called to proclaim his death until he comes, as we heard a few moments ago in communion. And just a reminder that this does not mean words alone, or even primarily words. You will remember that in this book, Peter is writing against false teachers, but he focuses on their behavior more than on what they have to say. And I would remind you of the words of Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel everywhere you go, and if necessary, use words. We are to live out the truth that we are citizens of God's kingdom that is here and now that is spreading, and one day it will spread eternally when the return of Jesus. So we're to prepare ourselves But in verses 12 and 13, the second part of verse 12 and 13, 
We are to long for this return, this beginning. What we find in verse 12 is that Peter is repeating some of what he said in verse number 10. Again, I've told you this before, but whenever you find something repeated in a passage, you're supposed to pay attention to all of it, but when something is repeated, something significant is going on. The significant thing here is something has been added, that we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. One might ask, how is it that we are to look forward to the destruction of creation, particularly because it is God's creation. It is that which reveals who God is. It's going to be destroyed or dissolved. I think it is natural that we would have mixed emotions. But consider that judgment means the end of conflict in God's creation and the end of opposition to God's program. One writer put it this way. The enmity which has been the context for all God's activities since Satan opposed him in the garden will be done away. All the powers on earth, in heaven and in hell, that have sought to block God's work of restoration will be put down and God will reign as king alone. And the creation itself will be set free from bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. This last part is taken from Romans 8. Let me read it to you. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains or as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Peter writes, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. What promise is that? Well, you will know, if you've been with us, that Peter is very fond of looking to the Old Testament and then bringing in the New Testament. In Isaiah 65, behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. The one thing that should jump out at us is that the language is speaking of renewal, not abolition. Again, because we use English and not Greek, we may miss something. The word that Peter uses for new is kainos, which means new in terms of nature or quality, not the traditional word of neos that we're more familiar with that speaks of something that is new in time or origin. And so the new heavens and the new earth aren't going to be something that are totally disconnected from what we have right now, but they will be different. They will be new in nature and in quality. They will, as Paul puts it, be liberated, not obliterated. Creation waits as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Because the prospect, the end, is not death, but birth. With the women we have who are expecting in our congregation, the end of their pregnancy is birth. New life coming into the world. The life is already there. 
But the end of the pregnancy marks the child separate from the mother. The result will be the home of righteousness. So all of this to say that the final word is not judgment. The final word is not destruction or even toast. What marks the end of opposition to God's rule is judgment. It also marks the beginning, a new heaven and a new earth and the home of righteousness. I find oftentimes that as God's people, we get things half right, which is oftentimes dangerous. There will be judgment and the heavens and the earth will be destroyed with fire. But that's not the final word. The final word is the new heaven and the new earth. Destruction isn't the final word. Judgment isn't the final word. But the home of righteousness is. And we should take to heart what Habakkuk wrote. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And how are we to live in that light, living between the coming of Jesus into the world and his return? We are to live holy and godly lives. Because the end of things is not some impersonal cataclysm. It is a personal judgment. And we who are God's people are in the kingdom now should look forward to the time when he will return. Let's make sure we get the whole picture and not just part of it. We are sinners without question. But sin is not the final word. God's grace is. Let's not forget that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches us. And yet, we freely confess that oftentimes we are overwhelmed by it. It's too much to keep straight. We thank you for the glory of your creation, that you spoke the word and it was created. That you care enough about your creation to send your son into it, to redeem it and your people. But for that redemption to happen, there will be a cleansing. Things will be laid bare. But that's not the end of this story. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness. May we as your people think about this and realize this is to be our perspective. This is to be our orientation. We are to be looking forward to those things that are eternal does not mean that we cannot enjoy the things you've given us in this life for our marriages and our jobs the times of joy the possessions that we have but these are not to define us these things will pass away we should look forward to our eternal home the home of righteousness Again, much of this is 
it's hard for us to get our heads around this. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. But may we as your people trust that you have spoken the truth to us. You who are a personal infinite God who spoke and is speaking and will speak. We are to take these words to heart and put them into practice. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.